Amen. Let's turn now to our confessional reading this evening, Lord's Day 18. And it is uh, one of the uh, longer Lord's Days. It has been uh, said by those who understand the history better than I do, much better than I do, that Lord's Day 18 is one of the reasons, if not the reason, that the Catechism was written. Because uh, sometimes there are debates about the presence of God and the two natures of Jesus Christ. And uh, there were debates about that uh, in the uh, region of Heidelberg leading up to the writing of the catechism and so we have we have a longer we have a longer lord's day we have more details than we have for some of the other lines of the apostles creed about christ and uh, we are going to zoom in then we're going to look especially at question and answer 47 and a little bit at 48 uh, but we will read 46 uh, to 49 and I'll read just half a verse before we do that and it's the verse which is behind question 47. It's the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to read Matthew 28, verse 20b. Christ says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew. Well, with that, brothers and sisters, I'll read the questions together. Let's say the answers. Uh, for Lord's Day 18, I'll begin with question 46. What do you mean by saying, He ascended to heaven, that Christ, while His disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until He comes again to judge the living and the dead? But isn't Christ with us until the end of the world, as he promised us. Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth, but in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Certainly not, since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere. It is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that he has been taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. 49. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he ascends to spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, 
but the things above where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. Again, one of the longer Lord's Days, we're thinking especially about 47 and a little bit about 48 tonight. Let us uh, turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, page 827 in the Bibles under the seats. We're looking especially at 23 and 24. We'll read from 16 to 32 as we get some of the context. So think about especially in our first point. So we begin our reading at verse 16 of Jeremiah chapter 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. For who among them? has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened. Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and to tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So, They do not profit this people at all, declares 
the Lord. So far, the reading. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Again, we're looking especially at verses 23 and 24. Dear congregation, the two natures of Christ must not be mixed or confused. The two natures of Christ, one divine nature and his human nature, must also not be divided or separated. Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. He is fully God. He is fully man. And the two natures are personally united in one person. Now the right understanding of this is something that is at the center of theological debate in in various times, especially in the 400s AD, especially as part of the discussions of the Reformation in the 1500s, and also at your family table. The first discussion of the two natures of Christ, the first great discussion about these things, it came to a head at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And as we can rejoice in the wonderful clarity and brevity and truth of the early church councils, uh, so it continues at Chalcedon. And we have about two paragraphs of beautiful truth summarized in Chalcedon in 451. It begins with this. We then, following our holy fathers, we're not making this up, we're not the first generation to say this, we then, following the holy fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. And then a little more than a thousand years after this, the the natures of Christ and, and who Christ is, what is his divinity, how does the divinity of Christ relate to his humanity? It was again part of the Reformation uh, debates, especially as it related to the Lord's Supper. But these are not just debates for church history. As I said, they also come to the family table. Fred Kluster, who is one of the last very conservative professors at Calvin Seminary, uh, once said it this way, uh, quote, I was shaving young one morning, My youngest son startled me with questions that arose from the Bible stories his mother had read him the previous night. They concerned some of the very issues dealt with at Chalcedon and revived during the Reformation. And his son asked these three questions. How could Jesus be God and man? Where is Jesus now? Can Jesus really be with us if he is now in heaven? And brothers and sisters, I'm just going to say, I put this quote into my manuscript yesterday, and this morning I'm sitting at the family table, and my oldest daughter asks me, is Jesus still on earth? From Chalcedon to the Reformation to your family table or to the thoughts of your own mind, as you come to the Word of God and as you 
Lay down on your pillow when you think about how is Christ man and God? How is he man and God? And what does this mean for me? Well, we're going to focus on the truth that Christ is God. Jesus Christ is fully God and, and on, on his divine nature tonight. And so uh, that's our theme. Know that God is omnipresent. Know that God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is everywhere present. And especially we're thinking tonight about the Son and about his divine nature. Because the divine nature of Jesus Christ is in places that the human nature of Christ is not. And then uh, we have two points. Um, really, uh, we're not going to get to our third point if you're looking at the at the outline. Fear God's knowledge first and then trust God's way. So when we think about the presence of God, there is much comfort in that truth. And that's, that's going to be the focus of our second point. And uh, in many ways, we can say that's the focus of Psalm 139, which we sang from, and which is one of the clear declarations of God being everywhere present and of that omnipresent uh, attribute of God. But it is also true that thinking about the omnipresence of God should strike a holy fear in everyone. And so that is the primary context of Jeremiah 23. We have a clear declaration of the the omnipresence of God. Verse 23, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? That is, in Old Testament terms, exactly how the one true God would would bring the rhetorical question against false Old Testament thinking. Because false Old Testament thinking is this, that there are all kinds of local gods and they're they're maybe you know more powerful and, and reach beyond where I can reach, but my local God only reaches to, to the borders of my nation and to the tip of the spear of the army of my nation. That is Old Testament thinking. That's the Old Testament way of thinking about gods and the Old Testament thinking that the very people of God too often fell into, uh, even uh, as Baal, uh, for example, is mentioned in the following verses. But God says, I am not just a God near at hand. I am also the God far away. I am the God of every land. I am God who is in every place. Can a man hide himself, verse 24, in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord, Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. God is everywhere present. And in Jeremiah 23, in the immediately surrounding verses, this is something that those who are pretending that there's no judgment of God which will come upon them, they must know. Uh, So look back in in verse 17. There's those who are saying no disaster will come. In verse 19, uh, we see the word wrath. And they're pretending that there's no wrath of God that will come against them. Verse 20, the anger of the Lord. They're pretending there's no anger of the Lord that will come. 
the context of this is the is the phrase repeated a couple of times in Jeremiah and seen first in Jeremiah chapter 6. Please turn back to Jeremiah 6, verses 13 to 15. This was, this was a, a, a primary false theme of the false teachers was the saying, there's no judgment, there's nothing coming. And it's summarized this way as the true prophet speaks of the situation in Jeremiah 6, verse 13 to 15. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have, he- they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At that time I will punish them, and they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. All of God's word applies for us today. But Jeremiah is one of those places where we can see the application easily. What is, what is the United States right now? It's a post-Christian nation where there are still many who speak in the name of Christ, but it's a Christ who's not everywhere present. Who doesn't see all that man does and bring just judgment to bear. It's peace, peace, where there is no peace. It is uh, what what one pastor once called a practical denial of the omnipresence of God. So there are many who, if you ask them, is God omnipresent? They might have enough of a residue of Christian teaching that they would say, oh yeah, that's one of the attributes of God. God is omnipresent. But then if you say, does God see everything, be in every place, and bring just judgment... Upon sinners? And the answer to that is, is no. There is, a, there is a pretending that God being everywhere present isn't really true. Or that it doesn't really have any impact on, on what people would do. We can just say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Because there's a practical denial of the omnipresence of God. And what does this have to do with Christ? Well, Christ is fully God. So even as we have to remember that the divinity of Christ and the human nature of Christ are not the same, question answer 48, His divinity is not limited and is everywhere present. Going down a couple of lines, His divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that He has taken on. So whenever we're talking about the attributes of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're talking about the attributes of Christ's divine nature. Christ's divine nature is everywhere. When that question is asked, is Jesus still on earth? The answer is yes and no. In his humanity, Jesus is not on earth. But Jesus is also God. And in his divinity... 
Jesus is on earth. Jesus fills the heaven and the earth. And again, that has implications for God knowing everything. The perfectly, it's the perfectly just God. It's the perfectly righteous God who is everywhere and sees everything. So then if we think about as we think about Jesus Christ, and as we think about the warnings of, of those who practically deny the omnipresence of God in Jeremiah 23, is there any direct language about the Son that relates to this? Now please turn back with me towards the very end of our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Here's language applied directly to the Son, to the Lamb of God. Revelation is very clear. The Lamb of God is Jesus Christ. and to all that the Lamb of God does. Revelation chapter 14, beginning at verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It is so tempting to think that sin is not a big deal. On a, we might say on the small scale. We see this when children, you always act the same way when you know that your parents are in the room or not in the room. Students, do you always act the same way when you know that your teacher is in the room or not in the room. Workers, do you always work the same way you know that your supervisor is in the room or not in the room. Those are just small pictures getting us towards the reality. Image bearers of God, do you always live as though you are in the presence of God? But now back in our text, the reason why God wants a plain declaration of his presence and the fact that his presence means you, you can't escape. You can't, there's, no, there's no secret place where you can sin without consequence. There's no secret hour where you can go on sinning without consequence. The, the purpose of that why did God want the prophets to preach that instead of preaching peace, peace when there is no peace? Instead of preaching, yeah, you can pretend like God's not really there and doesn't really see this or doesn't really see that. Why did God want the truth preached? It's in verse 22. If they, the false prophets, had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned from their evil way. 
That's why we need to preach all of who Christ is. We're coming up on the Christmas season. And uh, some of you may have heard me say this before. What is the temptation? The temptation is to think of Jesus Christ as just being this peaceful little baby in a manger. And it's all peaceful and it's, and it's all nice music and all those things. We need to remember that Jesus is... He did come incarnate and he, and he is gentle and lowly and, and come to me and you will have rest. He is those things, but he is also king of kings who will come on his war horse and with the sword of judgment. And if we take away from all of who Christ is, then we will not plainly hear the call to repent from sin. Because if the call to repent from sin comes and the only picture that you have of Jesus Christ is a little baby in a manger, then what is the call to confess? Everything is, is peace, peace. Everything is silent night. Nothing is the last judgment. No, Jesus Christ is, is all of these things. And Jesus Christ wants us to hear all of these things so that we would be driven to repentance. So that we would see the seriousness of sin and there's there's no escape from, from God's presence, from God's knowing our sins. We must confess. Then, when we know our sins and confess our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, then, then there, is, there is comfort. And that's our, that's our second point. Trusting in God's way or Really, we, we're, we're moving from the, the convicting reality of the divine presence of God to the comforting reality of the divine presence of God. Because when, when we confess our sins, then we have all the benefits and the blessings. And uh, so, uh, please look with me at the middle of, of question and answer 47. If, uh, if we put it this way, looking at the second to last line, the, uh, the, the catechism there uses four words to describe how Christ is still on earth. He's still on earth in his divinity, his majesty, his grace, and his spirit. But we can say those first two, that, that applies to, to everybody. The divinity of Christ, no one can escape from it. The majesty of Christ, including the, the magisterial perfect judgment, nobody can escape from that. And everybody is under, in that sense, the divine presence of God, in, in that nobody could escape from it. Nobody can find a place to hide. But the last two... And the Heidelberg Catechism is the answer of a believer. The last two are things which really only a believer can speak of. And his grace. And his spirit. Because when our sins are 
confessed, then the cup of wrath is, is not poured out on us. It's poured out on Christ for us. We have His grace. Because Jesus Christ is, is not just a man who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and that has its own benefits, and Lord willing, we'll look at that next Sunday night. But because Jesus Christ is not just a man, because He's also God, His, His grace does go out to all. He can save people across time, across generations, in a way that, of course, no man can even save a single man. His grace really can be for every person because His power to accomplish salvation on the cross is not just a human power, it's divine power. He is not like us when we consider His divinity. And so we say, brothers and sisters, His grace is still with us. His body is not present here anymore, but His divine presence is still here. And as His people, that means His gracious presence is here. His saving grace is with all His people. He is not just man, he is God. Saving grace is with you now as you trust in him. And then also his spirit. Now it's capitalized in the catechism because it's Christ's Holy Spirit. Just as Christ is God's, God's Son, so also we can speak of the Spirit as being both the Son's and the Father's. John chapter 14 is the key text there. Please turn with me to John chapter 14. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples and the context is very much Jesus is trying to get them ready for the fact that he's not bodily going to be with them anymore. I am going away. The body of Jesus Christ will not be on earth, but how will he be with his disciples? I'll read verses 16 to 18. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for He dwells with you and will be in you. Again, going back to the language of the Catechism, the majesty of Jesus Christ is is over everyone. The authority of Jesus Christ is over everyone. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, dwells in a special way with believers. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is the special way that Christ remains with His people through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Again, we we have the language of I will be with you to the end of the age. That's how the Gospel of Matthew ends. We have the historical account of Jesus not staying on earth in His body. That's the end of the Gospel of Luke. He, he, He is left. His body is departed. No, He... How are, how are these things both true? 
How are these things both true? Because he's both God and man. So he remains with us as one who is still God, and he remains with us through his Spirit, sent in a special way. I will not leave you as orphans. So we have the Holy Spirit in a special way as God's people. And that's that's also uh, the uh, third benefit uh, detailed at the end of question and answer 49. Jesus is still with us in these ways. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, this this leads us to our, our second primary application. Again, this, this language, I'm, I'm borrowing it from another pastor. So in our first point, we said, let us not have a practical denial of the omnipresence of God by thinking that disobedience can go unseen. That was our first point. That's, that's, the, that's the summary of it, the practical application. Now, what is it here for our second point? Let us not practically deny the omnipresence of God by living in discontentment. Because whenever we are discontent, it is a practical denial of the omnipresence of God. Whenever we are discontent, we are practically forgetting, even though Christ's body is not with us, Christ is with us. His grace is with us. His Holy Spirit is with us. And this is exactly where the author of Hebrews takes us. The author of Hebrews quotes from the end of Matthew and then uses the call of contentment, the language of contentment. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. And it's, uh, it's, in, a, it's in a series of instructions. And so we, we can really just jump into the, the middle of verse 5. And be content with what you have. For, why should we be content? He has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. We practically deny the omnipresence of God if we think disobedience can can be whatever. We practically deny the omnipresence of God if we are not growing in the Christian gift of contentment. Christ is with his people. Through all of the all of the punches, all of the blows, all of the temptations, all of the trials, all of the joys, all of the sorrows. His body is not here, but he is here. And he is here in a special way with his people. God is everywhere. We are not like God. It is so easy for us to forget this. It's so it's so difficult for us to wrap our minds around it. Indeed. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge us, brothers and sisters. I believe this is one of the places we are called to have childlike faith. This is one of the places we are called to have childlike faith. God is not with us. His body is in heaven. God is with us. Christ is God. Let's not, let's, let's not overthink the fact that both of those things are said plainly in Scripture. It's accepted by faith. And let's be comforted by it. Let us drive let it drive us to contentment. Jesus Christ is with us. And then coming to a conclusion, going back to Jeremiah twenty three. This is a little bit longer conclusion than usual. But I'd like you to look at the first verses of Jeremiah chapter twenty three. And I want you to think about a question with me. So Jeremiah 23, surrounding our key text, verses 23 and 24, where the omnipresence, the divine omnipresence is so plainly laid out. Surrounding that, there's, there's all the language of, of conviction, of you must not forget that God knows everything. And... But at the beginning of this very chapter is one of the many places where a promised deliverer is is spoken of. This happens again and again in the Old Testament. Here it is right in the chapter of our text. And uh, I'll begin reading at verse 5 of Jeremiah chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now brothers and sisters, we are not God. So there are truths about God which are not easy for us to wrap our minds around. But let me just say that we can rejoice, that we can answer questions about who is the Deliverer, who is the True Shepherd, who is the Messiah. And Messiah is both God and man. We we can answer that question and we can see how God has brought deliverance in a much plainer and easier way than the Old Testament saints could. They had the promised deliverance, but it was not as plain as we have it now. And so, uh, let us not get uh, so wrapped up in Christ is both divine and human, and and I'm only human, so it's hard for me to understand that. Let's not get so wrapped up in that 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 we think everything is just hard and everything is, is difficult to understand. No, by faith, let us see the beauty of Christ has come. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is man and God, the God-man deliverer. And this is the only way that all of the promises of God could be yes and amen in Him, in Christ Jesus. From Chalcedon to the debates of the Reformation to the family table. Let us rejoice that Christ has come and that we can speak of and rejoice in our God, man, shepherd, king, 
deliverer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord God, we are not God. May we, your people, see how you are not like us, even as we can rejoice in seeing that God